Turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 16. Beginning to read with the 44th verse. As we follow through the journeys of Israel as they go from Egypt to the Promised Land, we come to the book of Numbers, there's a certain sameness about the accounts that we read, a certain horrible continued rebelliousness about the people that just dismays us. And uh, we think, as we read it, was ever a people as stubborn and rebellious as this people. And yet we fail to appreciate <clears throat> that what we pick up here is not an especially stupid or stubborn people, but what we pick up here is a very realistic picture of human nature, your human nature, my human nature, apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from the softening influences of his spirit. Even the demonstrations of the power of God and the holiness and justice of God that they'd had up to this point uh, did, didn't really affect them any more than uh, Pharaoh had been affected by the judgments that God sent on his own, own nation of Egypt. We come here to another story of uh, the murmuring of the people against Moses and Aaron. In the 41st verse of the 16th chapter of Numbers, But on the morrow all of the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. Now they're referring to a event on the previous day that's described in the first part of the chapter, 16, uh, the subject of it <clears throat> had to do with a complaint that was made by a number of leaders of the congregation. It's described in verses 1 through 3. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abram, rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord? And Moses heard it and fell on his face. Always Moses is falling on his face as we read this. A very meek, very humble man. Their complaint is that uh, Moses and Aaron had usurped authority, uh, that all of the people were just as holy as them. Uh, Moses had no more right to be in the office of high priest than these men. Uh, Moses <clears throat> uh, rightly refers to this as rebellion against God himself. In the 11th verse of this 16th chapter, he says, Both thou and thy company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you murmur against him? It's really the Lord. This, uh, this event is referred to in the New Testament in the book of Jude. And it's referred to as those who follow after the gainsaying of Kor or Korah. Gainsaying meaning uh, the rebelliousness, the 
uh, insubordination as he defies the duly constituted leadership that God had instituted here. We realize that they are rebelling against God's high priest. And right away we see a parallel in our own individual lives as we recall the parable the Lord Jesus told. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain nobleman who went into a far country to receive a kingdom and returned, that there he would be invested with authority over this country, and he would return to reign over it. But he says, as he went, the the people of that kingdom shook their fist, and they said, we will not have this man to reign over us. Jesus said, that's the way it is with the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the nobleman who receives authority from his father to govern, but men will not have him to reign over them. That's the attitude of 90% of the people surrounding us today. Why is it that the average person doesn't become a Christian? Is it that he can't buy the claims of Christ? He can't believe that this man was God the Son? Some folks have that hang-up. But in ten years in the pastorate, I'm convinced that the reason most men who hear about Jesus Christ don't become Christians is they are not willing for this man to reign over them. And we need to understand no one ever became a Christian without settling that. They may pray and they may say, Jesus, come into my heart. But unless they meant reign over me, subdue me, your will in my life, they didn't become Christians. They didn't enter the kingdom the king's domain, because the kingdom of God is a spiritual domain over which he's king. And I enter that kingdom when he enters me as king. And he doesn't enter me except as king. Know this, nor of the terms complain, where Jesus comes, he comes to reign, or he doesn't come at all. God has exalted him to be a prince and a savior. What God hath joined together. Let not man put asunder. We must not separate his princeship from his saviorhood. You cannot have a divided Christ. What about the rebellion of our hearts? Have you settled this issue? Is Jesus Christ king in your life? Does he reign over you so that when his word says, This far and no farther, you shall not do this or you must do this, that he controls your actions. That's the way you go. Or do you go in the way you want to go, regardless of what he said? There's the test of whether or not you're a Christian. Faith without works is dead. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Here's the test. We see how Moses handles this case, this complaint. He refers it on up to a superior court. In verse 16, he says, We'll just take the matter to the Lord. Moses said unto Korah, Be thou and all thy company before the Lord, thou and they and Aaron tomorrow. Take every man his censer, put incense in them, bring ye before the Lord, 
every man his censer, 250 censers, and also Aaron, you bring yours. We'll let the Lord decide the issue. He appeals the case to God. <clears throat> God answers. The answer is given in steps. The first step, in verse 23, the Lord spake unto Moses, said, saying, Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get you up from about the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. God says, Separate yourselves from those people. In the New Testament, Come ye apart, be ye separate, touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, saith the Lord. Separate yourselves so that you won't be a partaker of the punishment that comes to these men, he says. Second, uh, the swallowing up of these men and their families. In verse 27, and So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abram on every side. Can't you see this solemn scene developing? As if suddenly they just move away. Dathan and Abram came out and stood in the door of their tents and their wives and their sons and their little children. Moses said, and I'm sure that he must have had divine intimation of this as he spoke this way, Hereby shall you know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and I have not done them of mine own mind. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up, with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. It came to pass that as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up. And their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods, they and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed on them. And they perished from among the congregation. What a terrible story. I was reading a Bible story book that had very vivid, realistic pictures several years back when my youngest was three years old. And we came to this story. And I saw it through her eyes as, as we read the story and looked at it and the terror of it. As the families went down alive into the pit. What a terrible thing. Even as a temporal judgment. But when we take it as a valid picture of eternal judgment, the awful thing that's going to happen to all those who die in their sins, a picture of hell swallowing up people alive, that's exactly what we've got here. Oh, what a horrible scene. The cries of these men echo in your ear. I don't believe God would do anything like that today, do you? 
I mean, God's a God of love, isn't he? Isn't he? And the Old Testament taught a God of wrath. We'll have to get rid of the Old Testament. Well, that's what the average seminary professor tells us today. But that isn't what Jesus said. Jesus said, not one jot or one tittle shall pass from the all till all be fulfilled. It is written. Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures. Jesus said, it's all true. That's the way God is. The God that Jesus Christ taught about is just like that. This isn't some awful dream that Moses dreamed up and Moses was some perverted person who loved to scare little children, so he wrote this into the Bible. This happened. And it said something about what God's like today, yesterday, and always. I know men don't like this doctrine of God's wrath. Men always have rebelled against it. Men always will rebel against it. John Herkus, the Australian doctor who's written so wonderfully the biography of various biblical characters in his book on David, says, The truth is that men never really have any problem, not any real problem, in understanding the strong, awesome judgment of God. They may complain about it, but they have no difficulty at all in understanding the ruthless judgment that declares that black is black because only the purest white is white. True, we hear from the right, left, and center, from ignorant pagans and even from highly trained theologians, the prattle about all this hellfire and brimstone talk isn't my idea of God. I think God is a God of love, and I don't think he'd hurt a fly. I think. But we're not talking about what I think or what you think. We're talking about what God said, what Jesus said. And men, says Hercus, don't like to think of God like this <clears throat> because they're terrified. How do you know God is loving? I'll just tell you something. You didn't find that out from philosophy. And you didn't find that out from any other religion. The Bible said God is love. The Bible said there's a heaven. And the same Bible said God is just and holy and must punish sin and there's a hell. God had this memorialized. He told Moses, now take the censers of these men and make a, a plate out of it to cover the altar for a sign and a memorial to the children of Israel so they'll see it and fear and not go against me like that anymore. Why is this story in the Bible? As a memorial and a sign... So we'll do the same thing. We'll tremble before the mighty and terrible God and not do like these men did. The subject of their complaint was this whole situation. They say, Moses, you kill the people of the Lord. The very next day, they gather together and they say this. And we have a further manifestation of the wrath of the Lord. In verse 42, it came to pass 
that when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron, that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared, this blazing forth from that great cloud of the Shekinah glory, and people stepped back in awe. And uh, then the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And in that moment on his face before God, Moses perceives what God is doing. And he quickly says to Aaron, Take a censer, put fire therein from off the altar, put on incense, go quickly into the congregation and make an atonement for them, for there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague is begun. And then we have the making of atonement by Aaron. Notice what he does. He takes a censer, he takes incense, he takes fire from off the altar, and he rushes into this tumultuous congregation. As before his eyes, row after row after row is suddenly being mowed down by an invisible hand. Wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun, and thousands are dropping. And Aaron, with his censer, rushes into this crowd. The result, in verse 46, verse 47, it says that uh, as he does this, he makes an atonement, and he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. He makes atonement, he stops the plague. Now, brethren, we're not children anymore. And we understand that when we read a story like this in the Bible, often there's much more involved than just a story. Here's another one of those great pictures that God painted ahead of time of what he was going to do through his great high priest that he would send into the midst of people stricken with a plague of plagues, sin and the resulting death. He would send his great high priest into this world to stand and make atonement and stop the plague. Where did Aaron take his fire from? From off the altar of burnt offering. What does that altar speak of? The great sacrifice. The sacrifice that years later the Lord Jesus Christ would make of himself, offering himself as an atonement to God. Someone has given us a poem spoken by one of the thieves, one of the two thieves crucified with Christ, expresses something of the confusion of the world about the death of Jesus Christ. It was on a Friday morning that they took me from the cell, says this thief, and I saw they had a carpenter to crucify as well. You can blame it on Pilate. You can blame it on the Jews. You can blame it on the devil. It's God, I accuse. It's God they ought to crucify instead of you and me, I said to the carpenter hanging on the tree. Now, Barabbas was a killer, and they let Barabbas go. But you're being crucified for nothing here below. But God is up in heaven, and he doesn't do a thing with a million angels watching, and they never move a wing. It's God they ought to crucify instead of you and me. I said to the carpenter hanging on the tree. It was God they crucified. 
They shouldn't have. But God himself came into this world, that great shepherd of the sheep, and gave his own life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The carpenter was God. And he gave himself to make atonement. He paid in his own body for our sins. So God could stop the plague and forgive sins. And he makes intercession based on that great sacrifice. His intercession that he makes today for sinners is based on his atonement that he made 2,000 years ago. In the great hymn, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands, my name is written in his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. And let, nor let that ransomed sinner die. Christ intercedes now before the throne of God. His wounds plead strongly, effectually. When Aaron rushed into that crowd, the plague stopped. And Christ made an effectual atonement for sin, and he is now able to save unto the uttermost all that come unto God by him. He bare the sin of many, says Isaiah, and made intercession for the transgressors. As a popular hymn, Like a bridge over troubled waters, I will lay me down. Isn't that what Jesus did? He laid himself down, built a bridge from heaven to earth by offering himself. God's great high priest offering himself. Think of the comparison. Aaron went in love to a people that hated him, a people who wanted to kill him. Isn't that what Jesus did? The second psalm pictures the attitude of the natural man, and it says they want to cast his bonds from them. Be free from God's constricting regulations and authority. Jesus told another parable about those who say, Come, let us kill the heir. He was the heir. Come, let us kill the heir. Then the inheritance will be ours. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Died for men who hated him. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Again, when Aaron went, he went with a censer in his hand. He didn't go empty-handed. And Christ, as he makes atonement, he carried with him a spotless life. 
a perfect righteousness as he makes full atonement on Jesus' blood and righteousness. This is what we build on. His perfect life, his substitutionary death. Together they made atonement. Together they make a sufficient foundation for the vilest sinner who ever lived to be pardoned of every one of his black sins. Who's the vilest sinner that ever lived? Me. You. And he made full atonement. Aaron didn't take Moses with him. He went by himself. Jesus tread the winepress of the wrath of God alone. No man with him. No one else could. There was none other good enough to pay the price of sin. He alone could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. And he was sufficient. Listen, you don't need Christ in the church to save you. You don't need Christ in a good record to save you. You don't need Christ in being baptized or Christ in speaking in tongues to save you. All you need is Christ. He made atonement. You put your trust in the atonement that he made, and in him is the great atoner, and you're saved. Jesus only let me see. Jesus only, none save he. He alone shall be my plea. Jesus, Jesus only. In his going, he divided the living from the dead. As Aaron rushed into that congregation... And took his stand there, and the plague came on and on, and incense went up from his censer, and row after row of corpses fall before him. Suddenly, it comes to him and stops, and can proceed no farther, and all behind him are alive, and all who were not behind him are dead. Jesus Christ divides the living from the dead. God's great high priest standing between the dead and the living Offering his great atonement. Is God a God of wrath and justice? Yes, he is. Is God a love of mercy? Is God a God of mercy and love? Yes, he is. What amazing love. God takes one further step to stop their murmurings. He tells them, every head of a tribe bring a rod and lay it up in the tabernacle. And the man whom I choose, I will cause his rod to bud. The man who really is acceptable as high priest, who is holy in a special way. And they do this. And on the next day, we read in chapter 17, as they take these out, it says in verse 8, It came to pass that as Moses went into the tabernacle of the witness, behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds. A miracle. God does a miracle. This miracle spoke of the issue at hand, whether Aaron was holy. What better emblem of holiness than fruitfulness? Isn't that the essence of holiness? Fruitfulness unto God. 
and he has Aaron's rod bear fruit. Again, if we wanted to think of it, we could think of it as a picture of life coming out of death of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by which God attested to him being his son as he had claimed to be. Why did God do this miracle? He did it, it says, to stop their murmurings so they would not die. God doesn't desire the death of anyone. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn and live. But when they don't, in justice, he has to go ahead and deal with them as they deserve. Brethren, there's a message here for everyone. When God deals with us in judgment, yield, or a greater judgment will come because God will overcome when he judges. No man is ever going to successfully resist God. Do you know what it says? Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Those who wouldn't confess him in this life, they will confess him in the life to come. It won't save them then. But their knee will go down and their tongue will say, yes, he is Lord. And they'll say it with gnashing of teeth and wailing in outer darkness. But they'll say it, God will overcome. And your arms are too short to box with God. Yield. Repent. That's to every one of us. And then there's a great message here for Christians. Oh! Isn't this a picture of what the world is like now? Aren't men all around us being mowed down by that invisible sickle that comes along and as they're mowed down one after another, they're going into the pit? And don't you and I have this sensor that we can rush into the midst of them and stop the plague? Don't we have the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes? When was the last time you told a neighbor about Jesus Christ? Aren't there people on your street who are infected with a plague of plagues and no one has come and stood in front of them with that sensor that can stop the plague and said, get behind me, get behind me. There's safety over here. Jesus died for sin. When was the last time you told somebody at the office about Jesus Christ? If you're not, you're like if Aaron had turned to Moses and said, Let him die! Let him die! That's what we're doing. I can't fathom it. We've got to rush into the midst of the great congregation around, them, around us and pluck them as brands out of the burning. Of course, there's some here who are not Christians, as always. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. But think. Jesus Christ separates the dead from the living. On which side are you? Are you alive? Have you placed him between yourself and hell? Have you gotten behind his great atonement? And are you depending on Christ as your sin-bearer to make you acceptable with God. There's no other high priest. There's no other atonement. Why do you delay? Are you not willing for that man to reign over you? 
Want to go on and do your own thing a little while? Folly. Fool. Don't do that. Turn today. You know how long it takes to get saved? About ten seconds. When you mean business. When you're willing for that man to reign over you. And if you're willing for that man to reign over you today, and you'll put your trust in him right now, you'll swap sides. You'll be among the living. You'll be in his kingdom. He'll come into your heart as king. Give you a new life. Let's bow in prayer. And if you are sincere and you want Jesus Christ in your life, you pray right now in your heart the prayer that I pray out loud. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that I'm infected with the plague of plagues, sin. I acknowledge that I have not been willing for you to reign over me, but I am willing now, and I invite you to come into my life. I put my trust in that great atonement which you made when you offered yourself 2,000 years ago. Lord Jesus, I trust you as my Savior and surrender you as my Master right now. Amen.